Well, you can open up your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John. We are going to be sitting here for a little while. And before we sit here in the Gospel of John, long term, why? Not today. We'll, like, we'll get down normally today. Uh, but, I, you know, on a Wednesday, no, on Thursday, I went to this meeting for pastors in Collin County that the county judge had to just kind of inform people on all these things and, and obviously all these, you know, the, the, the things that have been going on in different areas and in our own area about responses to coronavirus and to COVID-19. Uh, have we thought about, I mean, should we change the message this morning and kind of speak towards that? And, um, and I've done those kind of things before when, when tragedies happen or things like that happen. But as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, in, in this time, kind of like what I said a little bit earlier, what we need to know is who is Jesus and where is he sitting? And where is our confidence? And where is our hope? Regardless of how we're responding to this. Some people are responding that it's no big deal. Some people are responding very um, cautiously. And we're not here to comment on, on either of those responses being better than the other. But both of those responses need to know that Jesus is on the throne. That we're sitting here today and Jesus is sitting on a heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father with his work finished. And so looking at the gospel of John, we get to look at that work. What is that work and who is this Savior? So we're going to begin this series today. And what I want to do today is we're going to give an overview of the whole book. So we're going to look at the whole book, and my goal this morning is to help you study the Bible better for yourself. And if that's not what preaching is doing, then preaching is failing. If preaching is not helping the church study their own Bibles better, then preaching is, is failing. And that's one of the reasons why the regular diet of the church needs to be what we call expositional preaching, expository preaching, that we're going verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, thought by thought, through the text, so that that the church can be edified because that's how you read your Bible. You didn't read your Bible and go, well, I just read everything cover to cover on, uh, on hope today. You don't know where that is. You said, I, I read in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That's what I read today in my quiet time. That's how we read, so that's how we should preach because that's how God laid it out. Because topical preaching, like what we did with the Solas series, that was topical now, if you do that steadily, if that's the steady diet of the church, then that teaches the church to rely upon the pastor. But if the, if the steady diet of the church is expositional teaching, going verse by verse through the Bible, then that conditions the church to rely upon the word of God. And that's what we should be doing. Now, God's gospel is a glorious portion of God's word, as is every portion of, of God's word. But I've grown to have a deep love for the gospel of John that I didn't used to always have. I didn't used to appreciate it. I remember one time uh, when I was working on staff with the Navigators, I was complaining to our director. Uh, his name was Cameron. And he was also discipling me at the time. Godly man influenced me in huge ways. And I was like, man, why do we always tell people, read the gospel of John when you're a new believer? Or if you're, you're not a believer, but you're you're open to Bible study. Let's read the Gospel of John together. Why are we telling them the Gospel of John? It's like the weirdest one. That's where Jesus says, drink my blood and eat my flesh and I am a door. Why are we telling them to read that? Let's tell them to read Mark or something. And he was like, well, maybe. You know, he was kind of nice and, and entertaining to my arrogance because sometimes people can just sound smart 
by questioning the status quo, but it doesn't make them smart. Because that was one of the dumbest things I've ever said. Why are we reading the Gospel of John? But this gospel, I mean, this gospel is so readable for a young child, or even someone young in the faith can really connect with it. But it's also compelling enough to lock down the most faithful of saints for a lifetime, studying it, just pulling it apart, putting it back together. One commentator wrote or said this about John, that John the Apostle writes with profound simplicity and accessible depth. Profound simplicity sounds like a contradiction, and accessible depth sounds like a contradiction. How can you access something that's deep? How can, you, you, how can something be simple and profound at the same time? But as we go through John, that's going to resonate with you. It does with me. That, that like, Oh, yeah, I know that story. But then you're like, whoa, do I know that story? Have I really considered that? But what I want to do today is, is give you tracks to run on as we go through our, our study of the Gospel of John. Handles to really hold. So before we take off running down the trail that is the Gospel of John, we're going to stop at the trailhead for a little bit and look at a map of the whole park and see how everything kind of lays itself out. And then we can go down the trails and look at each individual tree, each individual rock formation and nature and all those things. But let's look at the map before we go in. That's what we're going to do this morning. We've got to answer a couple of questions first before we can really get into the meat of it all. Because we're going to look at the Gospel of John and we're saying Gospel of John, but do we know what a gospel is? Not the gospel. What is a gospel? We have four of them in the New Testament, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But, but what is it? Well, a gospel is a particular genre of Scripture. You know what I mean when I say genre? That there was different styles of writing in the Bible. So there's historical narrative like 2 Kings and 1 Samuel. You have poetry like Proverbs and a lot of the prophetic writing. You have apocalyptic, which is the end time. So parts of Daniel, parts of 1 Thessalonians, all of Revelation. You have different genres of scripture. You have epistles, the letters like Corinthians and Romans. It's always important for us as students of God's word to know what kind of genre we're reading. What are we, what are we reading? Because, I'm, I, and you know this intuitively, do you read a love note from your spouse in the same way you read the grocery list? Are you coming to that with the same kind of emotion? Oh, eggs and bread and cream. Like, you know, you're reading it differently. You're like, oh yeah, okay, let's just mark it off. Then you're, then you're reading that note that your spouse took the time to write all the way up. Different genres, different audience, different author's intent. So we got to know that when we're reading the scriptures. So the gospels are historical narrative, but they're not the same kind of historical narrative like Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament. It's kind of the same, but it's a little bit different because the gospels, a lot of times we call them just, they're just biographies of Jesus. Yes and no. They're kind of like biographies of Jesus, but not really. Because if they are biographies of Jesus, and Jesus is the Son of God and the creator of the universe, then he got kind of shortchanged. They're pretty short. I mean, Winston Churchill, his biography is three volumes this thick. And Jesus gets four Gospels that fit in a book that's with everything else. So that they're, if they're biographies, they're kind of, they're kind of uh, anemic. Because a biography focuses on just merely telling the story of a person's life. 
This is where they were born. This is who their parents were. This is what they did. This is how they live. This is what they look like. This is where they were at this time, at this day. This is where they were at this time and this day. This is the paper they signed on this time. And that's what a biography is. It's just telling the story of somebody's life and how they died and what happened. But the Gospels, if they're biographies, then they're failing at that because they neglect Jesus' childhood almost wholesale. There's 11 verses in Luke chapter 2 about Jesus being 12 years old. 11 verses, and that's it, out of one, of one of the four Gospels. So they're not even really giving us his whole life. They don't describe his appearance. They don't describe his mannerisms. They don't describe his daily habits. They don't describe his education. We just kind of know that he was a carpenter. We don't even know what he built or what he did. So there's not a lot about him and those things. And it doesn't even have in the Gospels all of his miracles recorded. Not even all the work he did as the Messiah is recorded. John says at the very last verse of John in 21, 25, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John's saying, I didn't even write close to all of them. And neither did the other three guys. So Jesus is, these gospels, they're more like, what the ancient world would call a bios, B-I-O-S, bios. Not a biography, a bios. Because a bios was a different kind of writing. It was a narrative of an, of an individual, but it focused on that person's key event, the key moment in their lives, what made them significant, that one thing, that it was focused all around that. Not the extraneous details, not even some of the details that would be helpful to know but just that person's one key event and the teaching that surrounded it. So they weren't as concerned in a bios about the person's physical description or their personal development like a modern biography would be. They're after that key event. The four Gospels, so it's just as a genre, they're trying to convince you of something, not merely introduce you to someone. Most biographies are just like, hey, here's how you get to know Harry S. Truman, president of the United States from forever ago. The Gospels are not trying to do that. Hey, here's Jesus. Take him or leave him. No, they are trying to convince you of something. S. Lewis Johnson, who used to preach at uh, the Believer's uh, Bible Chapel in Dallas, he said that the Gospels are, are the, he said particularly the Gospel of John is, is propaganda. It's holy propaganda. It's trying to convince you to believe that something is true. Not just inform you of facts that are out there if you want them. To convince you to believe. He, he meant that the Gospels, and, and John particularly, they're trying to persuade you of something. They're not just delivering you plain facts. They want you to believe, to be convinced. You can think of the Gospels like extra-long evangelistic tracts. John's a 21-chapter-long evangelistic tract. Matthew's a 28-chapter-long evangelistic tract. Mark's 16 chapters. Luke's 24 chapters trying to make you believe something. John differs, though, from these other three in a fairly drastic way, not on content but on approach. John's different than the other three. Not because he has different facts and he's got like a whole new take. Not it. It's, it's that his approach to Jesus 
is unique from the other three. Tommy Nelson at, at Denton Bible Church, he says that, that uh, we get, with the four Gospels, we get Jesus in surround sound. So you get all the sounds coming around. Have you ever had it sat in a surround sound room? We don't have those anymore. You just get those sound bar things. Uh, but you could hear a car crash out of this speaker behind you that wasn't coming from the ones up in the front. You're getting all the sounds, and it's all around you. That's kind of what we have with the four Gospels. They each have their own unique contribution to the understanding of Jesus and to the convincing you to believe in him. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. They each have a different goal. See, Matthew's about, this is the gospel of the king. Jesus is king. Now, and Mark's about uh, another side of that same coin. It's the gospel of the servant, a Jesus' servant. And then, then Luke comes in, and Luke's the gospel of man, that Jesus was truly man. Now, John's purpose is that Jesus is God. John is the gospel of God. That's his unique position on Jesus. Now, the other three are called the synoptic gospels. You know, that means when we say synoptic, sin, with, optic, looking, it means looking together or seeing together. They all follow similar timelines with their content and their structure. They're all kind of following on the same. Even though they have different links and different emphases, they're kind of following a similar track together. But John is written way later than them. John writes in like A.D. 85 or A.D. 90, towards one of the last books written in the Bible, aside from Revelation, which he also wrote. But he writes it after all of them. And, and he's doing a different... Um, his methodology is different. That he's using simpler language and limited vocabulary. If you're ever in seminary, like Jeff and Michael, whenever you did Greek, whenever you got something from John, you were just like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Because the vocab was so much easier. I remember the first quiz or, or real translation project I had to do in seminary in Greek. It was like from John or from First John. And I was like, man, I'm awesome. I'm like a scholar. This is so easy. And then they gave me something from Luke and Acts. And I was like, oh, I'm a moron. I don't know any of this stuff. I don't know any of these words. But John's using simplistic language on purpose. And he's repeating a lot of the words that he's using on purpose. He's being intentionally redundant. But what he records that the others don't record, John doesn't record any exorcisms. There are no casting out of demons in the Gospel of John at all. He doesn't record any of Jesus' parables. None of them are in the Gospel of John. In fact, the only miracle that's in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. That's the only one that's in all four of them. And John takes a perspective on Jesus speaking that the other three don't really take. He records long discussions. There'll be a whole chapter dedicated to Jesus talking to one person, the woman at the well, the blind man that's healed in chapter 9. Nicodemus in chapter 3 gets a whole half of a chapter. Long discussions with just one people, one person, maybe a small group of people. He's doing that on purpose. Discussions or discourses where he's just talking for a long time. And he has, doesn't strictly follow a timeline either. He's not as concerned about the timeline as the other three, the synoptic gospels, are. So here's what I want you to do before we leave this. I want you to think about John in relationship to the other gospels um, like this. Think about the other gospels are like uh, movie directors, documentary directors that are all looking at the same event, the same big world event, and they're all three going to make a documentary on it. They're going to follow the same timeline. They're going to have roughly the same facts, 
be looking at it from the same way. They have their own spin on it because they're their own director, so they're going to put different nuances in there that are, that are unique, but they're following a timeline like that. But John's not a documentary director like those guys. John is like a friend you have that experienced that big world event, and he's just going to sit down and tell you. It's a little bit simpler, less... Um, Less, less rigid in its organization. It, it's almost like yeah, I can watch and I have watched documentaries on 9-11, like what happened at 9-11. There's all different ones, but they're all covering kind of the same details. But then I also have a family friend who was in New York City when the towers fell. And it's different hearing it from him when he's running away from the smoke and the debris that's chasing him down the roads, ducking and hiding behind uh, bus benches so that he doesn't get blown over by debris. That's a unique experience. But what I'm also not getting from my friend Matt Segrist, who lived through 9-11, I'm not getting any perspective on what's happening on the second plane. I'm not getting any perspective on what were the guys doing who took over the planes beforehand. He's just telling me what that moment was like. There's less details, but there's more ethos in a sense. Not, we're not deriding in the other three Gospels. We're just pointing out how John is different. That it's like sitting with a friend and him saying, I got to tell you who Jesus is. Trying to communicate that the feeling that who Jesus is and what that means for you coming across. That's what a gospel is. And, and, and this is the theme verse of John. We'll, we'll read it in a minute, but it's John 20, 30 through 31. We're going to look at this theme verse. And the reason we're going to do that is because most of us were never taught how to read critically. I know I wasn't. I was never taught how to read anything critically. I mean, we were taught how to read our ABCs. We could read English words. Uh, we understand that. We could read a book and fill out a paper on it or take a test on it. But reading critically, reading to understand the author's intent, or, or reading that, to find out what they're trying to prove, that's a skill that largely goes untaught. I know I didn't get that skill at all until I started to putting myself around other men who grasp the word of God and understanding of who God is far greater than me. And they read everything like that. What is this person trying to prove? Because every author has an agenda. Every author is trying to convince you of something. Everything from billboards to blogs to magazines to multi-volume books. If they sat down to write it and they published it and they put it out in front of you, they have a reason for it. They want something to happen, either you to feel something, think something, believe something, or like it enough to buy more of it. So there's an agenda behind everything that's written. They have a purpose and a point, and it's up to us to discover what it is. And the Bible's no different, because God is the divine author of the scriptures, the ultimate author, and he has the point of revealing himself to us so that we know who we are, who he is, and how the gap between us is bridged. The creator, redeemer of the universe is alone worthy of glory and honor. And the human authors that he used have sub-agendas under that main agenda. They're all, there's, all, there's one author and there's over 40 authors in the Bible. You just live in that paradox. So John's theme and purpose is shown to us in chapter 20, verse 31. Well, we'll read 30 and 31. <clears throat> When he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, 
But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he just puts it right there, plain as day. He is trying to convince the reader that Jesus is the Christ. This one called Jesus is the Messiah prophesied of in the New Testament, and you must believe in him if you want eternal life. That's his whole point. He's trying to convince him. It's not a sterile truth. He's not just saying something that's true and take it or leave it. There are plenty of things that are true but have no bearing on our lives. Like, did you know that it's scientifically true that a square inch of buffalo hide has 10 times more hair than a square inch of cow hide? That's scientifically true. Does that matter to you? No, doesn't matter to you at all because it has no bearing on you. That's true, though. John's not saying that. Hey, I just want you to know what's true about this guy who lived in Palestine from about A.D. 0 to A.D. 33. He's saying, I wrote this stuff. I left out some stuff and included other stuff because I want you to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior, that he is God, and that salvation and eternal life come through him alone. That's his whole purpose. That's what he's trying to do. That's what he's trying to convince us of. John is saying, it is true, and I'm trying to persuade you to believe. He's not just content to convey facts. That's not okay with him. He has a much more uh, in mind for writing this gospel. He's desperate for the reader to respond in faith. That's what he's after. Knowing the truth doesn't save anyone. There's plenty of avowed atheists who could tell you the four spiritual laws or could tell you the bridge to life evangelistic track, or who could tell you the main tenets of the gospel. Knowing the truth doesn't save you. Trusting and believing and resting, casting all that you are onto the truth, that's what saves you. So John is so obvious with this agenda throughout the whole book. You know, by my count, there's at least 21 individual instances in the gospel of John that are standalone um, paths to heaven. They're standalone. This is what it takes in order to be forgiven of your sins, or this is what it takes in order to be saved. This is what it takes to be in the presence of God. 21 different times in a 21-chapter book, the path to salvation and eternal life. Standalone passages. See, this is why what I said to Cameron was so stupid, because John's whole purpose is to convince the reader to believe in Jesus. So we should be printing out just little Gospels of John's and leaving them on trains and buses and handing them out and starting, hey, with my non-Christian friend, do you want to sit down and read the Gospel of John with me? Because his stated purpose is to persuade people to believe. That's why we should be doing it. That's why the church has done that forever. So I was an idiot for saying what I said. We should be using the Gospel of John, and it is one giant Gospel tract. Now, helping you grasp the book. Now, we're going to be going through this book verse by verse, but I want you to see things along the way, things to be looking for to help you study and to grasp it. I want to give you six key words throughout the Gospel of John that appear over and over again, a couple of them upwards of a hundred times in the book, to be looking for that. Why is God, or why is John so intentionally redundant? Look at these, look at some of these words. Uh, He's trying to make you see his point by keeping it straightforward. First word that I want you to see is the word believe. The word believe appears in the Gospel of John 98 times. 
It's obviously the central theme because that's what he said in 2020, 2031. Believe appears 98 times. It's blindingly obvious. But right up there with it at 99 times is the word true, truth or truly. That word is there 99 times. John is saying, I'm telling you this and it is true. This is the truth. And then Jesus will say several times, truly, truly, I say to you. This is the truth. It's not a lie. It's not a story. It's not just a fun moral experiment. This is the truth. Third word is the word world. Greek word cosmos, 85 times. That's significant. 85 times it appears in the Gospel of John. And what is he, what is he trying to get at by using that? There's the sinful world. There's the globe itself. There's the, um, the world as representative of nations. The gospel goes to the whole world, meaning every people group is going to have representatives in heaven. That word is used about 10 different ways in the gospel of John alone and appears 85 times. Fourth word to be looking out for is the word life. The word life appears 61 times in some form or fashion. The word zoe in Greek, that true abiding life is in Jesus. He calls himself the life. He is the life, eternal life that winks at death. The fifth word I want you to be looking out for that, that it kind of crops up a little bit at the beginning and then it explodes after chapter 13 or so is the word love. The word love appears 57 times. Love is the sole motivating force for why God and his holy abode would move towards rebellious creatures at all. And John is the one who says that God is love in 1 John chapter 4. He, this is a big theme in the way John writes uh, in the scriptures. The last word to look at appears 23 times, the word light, phos in the Greek, that the whole world is in darkness and Jesus is the only light. That's, that, that's what we want to be grabbing from that, that Jesus is the only way to live according to what is true, i.e. he's the only way to walk in the light, according to what's actually there. So the structure of the book those six keywords will help you look out for it. But then another major structure for the whole book is the seven miracles that appear in the Gospel of John. It's interesting to note that John only records seven miracles in the main structure of his book. There's one more at the very end. But the main structure of his book is seven. You know, the Gospel of Mark, in the first three chapters, there are seven miracles. But in the whole 21 of John, there's only seven, period. And they come kind of in clumps. In chapter 2, you have the water into wine. In chapter 4, you have Jesus healing the official's son. Chapter 5, the paralytic is healed. Chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. And then at the end of the chapter is the, uh, Jesus walking on water. And then the last miracle, the big one, uh, if, you, if you exclude his own resurrection, is Lazarus's resurrection in chapter 11. So John structures everything around those seven miracles, teaching things about Jesus in and around those things, that he recorded them on purpose. He, he calls them signs. Semion, he doesn't really use the word miracle. He uses the word sign. And why is John so sparse with the miracles? I mean, you have the Savior. He's your, he's your guy that you're writing about. Why wouldn't you include more? That would just seem more awesome to have more of them in there. John has a purpose. He already knows the other three Gospels exist. They're already there. They're already recorded. 
But think back to John's theme. His theme is to persuade you that Jesus is the Christ and the only way to eternal life. Can you see, experience, or hear of a miracle and still go to hell? Yes. Yes, you can. You can see plenty of miracles. Just John chapter 6 is written almost explicitly to that. That, that chapter is like 70 verses long. They, all the people see the, the 5,000 be fed, the miracle of the bread breaking, and they're all unrepentant, and Jesus calls them that. They saw a miracle. They experienced a miracle. What about in Luke chapter 17 when uh, Jesus heals the 10 lepers? How many of them actually repent and believe in Jesus? One. The other nine are like, jackpot, I can go live my life and do whatever I want now. You can experience a miracle and yet not be saved. John's after your salvation. His goal is not to wow us with Jesus' power over natural law. His goal is to convince us that the greatest miracle that you need is to be forgiven of your sins and be born again. That's what you need. Not that the other, four, the other three gospels are, they don't care about salvation. That's not true at all. But John has a specific purpose. And he has these unique contributions uh, to our understanding of Jesus, that things that we learn about Jesus primarily from the Gospel of John. I want to look at just a couple of those for you guys, about five of those for, that, uh, that we learn about Jesus or what Jesus teaches, and it's almost exclusively in the Gospel of John. First one, as I said it a minute ago, is the new birth, like born again. I mean, that was a really popular saying in the 70s and the 80s. Hey, I'm a born-again Christian, thanks to Jimmy Carter saying that when he became president. Uh, but that, that ideology, that, that whole concept is most fleshed out in John chapter 3. Jesus talking about being born again. Peter will say it in passing in 1 Peter twice. Other than that, it's exclusive to John. What does it mean to be born again, to experience the new birth, the second birth? That's John's idea. That he, Jesus is saying it, but John's the one recording it. What does it mean to be born again? It's the idea It's concurrent with the doctrine of regeneration, of being made new that you're a new creature in Christ. Second big contribution that John gives us about Jesus is the idea of eternal life. The other other three Gospels, they usually talk about salvation in the concept of the kingdom of heaven. Like, how do you get into the kingdom of heaven? That, That we pursue the kingdom of heaven. John uses the terms eternal life. That's his kind of unique thing. He's going to use the words eternal life as the kingdom promise of the Gospel not only to the extent of the life that it lasts for forever, but also to the, to the experience of the life, the quality, that it's real. Another thing that John uniquely gives to us about Jesus is the I am statements. When Jesus says, I am the door to the sheepfold, I am the good shepherd, those all come from John. He says, I am the light of the world, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the vine, and then the granddaddy of them all comes in John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, why is that one so massive? That's how God introduced himself to Moses. Moses, tell them that I am sent you. The only one who has the power of being. Does anybody remember their being verbs from elementary school? I guess they'll say them. Miss Wise, my Mennonite teacher, drilled them into my brain. M is R was were B being been do does did have has had may might must could should would. <laughs> that deserves a round of applause, I think, a little bit. The the being verbs, 
am. I am. God never was. He always is. And if anything exists, something has to have the power of being to just exist, that always exists, never, never started. And Jesus says that about himself. I am. That's massive. We get that from John. Another thing we get from John that, that the other Gospels don't focus in on as much is God's sovereignty and salvation. That, that's all over the Gospel of John. In 17.6, Jesus says that those who will believe already belong to the Father. Even though they have not yet believed, they already belong to the Father. And that Jesus secures for eternity everyone that the Father gives him in 639, 17.12, 18.9. By the way, these will all be on, online too if you can't write down this fast, that's okay. God's sovereignty and salvation, that Jesus knows his own sheep and he calls them by name and they follow him. John 10, 3 and 27. And when people do not believe, John 10, 26 says it's because they're not his sheep. John 1, 13 and John 3, 3 through 8, Jesus says that people cannot see or enter God's kingdom because they're not born again and you're only born by the will of another. You're born by the will of your father. That's what, that's what Jesus says and teaches. And that no one can come to Jesus in John 6, unless the father draws him. But that all who do come to him, Jesus will never cast out. John 6, 37 and following. That's uniquely we get that from the gospel of John. The last thing that we get is Jesus' long conversations and discourses. In the, in, the, in the first three gospels, most of Jesus' interactions are really short. They're really kind of pithy uh, and, and proverbial. What I mean by that is they're, they're like proverb, proverb statement, like render under Caesar what is Caesar's. That there's things like that that turn the other cheek. Like they just kind of pop out here and there. They're, 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 they're just like the word of God like everything else is. But John's unique take is he's going to sit down and have long conversations with one person. John 4, he's going to sit down with an outcast, a Samaritan woman, and have this long conversation with her. And she's going to run away and then come back, and he's going to keep talking with her. That's a unique moment. We get to see Jesus interact with the same people for a long time that we don't get in other places. And we're also going to have Jesus talk for just a really long time. John chapter 13 through 20 is basically, or uh, through 17 rather, is basically Jesus just talking on his own relatively uninterrupted. That's a long time to be talking. The only thing that compares to that is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. So those are unique things that we get about Jesus. And let me give you this outline, the Gospel of John, so that you can really kind of get your hands around the, the understanding the Gospel of John. Think about it like this. It's in four pieces. It has a prologue, an epilogue, and then two halves in the middle. The prologue is John 1, 1 through 18. That's just the word became flesh. We all know that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's the, the, the prologue, the intro. And then John 1.19, all the way through chapter 12, is Jesus' public ministry. So Jesus is doing things out in public. That's where all the miracles happen. That's where all the discourses with unbelievers happen and teaching of his disciples happens. Uh, the public teaching of his disciples but then it turns private for a season because chapter 13 through 20, that second big half, so prologue, public ministry, then you have the upper room discourse and the passion narrative. You know what I mean by that? Chapters 13 through 20 is Jesus up in the upper room, the Lord's Supper time, 
He's just talking with his disciples. He does that for 13 through 17. And then the rest of it is him being hauled before the courts and crucified, dead and raised after that. That's that part. And then the last part is the epilogue, the closing part. That's chapter 21. The whole chapter is the epilogue. So four, four parts. That's why you can kind of know where you are and how John has structured his book. Now, theology. Now, don't think that because John is... Uh, objective is overtly evangelistic that his gospel is thin on theology. See, there's a popular notion that if you, if you want to be about the business of leading people to Christ, you want to see people saved, then you have to water down the deep stuff. That's what we think. That's kind of just out there. You know, I have time for all that theology stuff. I just want to see people get saved. That, that we think that those are, those are different. We've bought into the erroneous notion that caring about the deep things of God is mutually exclusive to caring passionately about people. That those are somehow opposed to each other. Christians who love theology, they, they don't care about sharing the gospel with the lost. While Christians who just are, all they do is evangelize, they don't care anything about knowing who God really is. That's just, those are not true. That's an unbiblical and false dichotomy that John just throws out the window completely because Jesus models for us evangelistic conversations where he gets real deep with the people. He goes real deep, deeper than we probably would, and then John stuffs them all in and around with more theology around the conversation that Jesus is actually having. He brings thick theology to things that are blatantly evangelistic, this lost person, but he's going to bring the truth. Let me show you a few of those things just real quick. Theology proper, this is the, the study of God. Jesus says, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. How can two be one? Why are you telling a lost person that? Because theology matters. Next one, Christology, which is the study of Jesus. In John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought nobody could see God. How can we see his glory? How can God... The infinite put on flesh. We all know that. We all say that. But how can you contain infinity in, inside of finitude? It's just there. That's deep theology. What about pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit? John 16, 13 through 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, meaning the Holy Spirit doesn't have his own agenda. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That teaches us how to understand the Holy Spirit. Why are you telling people this? Jesus, it seems a little too deep for them. He includes it. Soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent him does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. It's right there, the depths of it all. Eschatology, the study of the end times. John 14, 2 through 3, we all know this, but maybe you couldn't have pinpointed it if somebody had asked you. But Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will also come again and take you to myself that, you, that where I am, you may be also. We all know that. That story, we tell it to our kids. Like, Jesus has got rooms in a massive house. And I'm in my Father's house. And we sing the song. But where was that? It's in John teaching theology when he's trying to share people the gospel. But also, don't think that this is true, that because it's got deep theology, there's nothing practical. Well, how do we live our day-to-day -day lives, John? 
How are we going to function in this world? He's got plenty of stuff, a practical guidance for our own sanctification. How do we share the gospel? In the first four chapters, Jesus shows you how to share with an elite, intelligent person like Nicodemus and how to share with an outcast, uneducated person, the Samaritan woman, chapter 3, chapter 4. How do we evangelize? Just follow what Jesus did. What about uh, uh, how do we deal with animosity from the world, that, that we live differently than them and that we're not doing what they say we should be doing, John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Jesus says, expect that. You should just expect that. Well, how do we interact with each other as Christians? How do we practically do that? Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment, I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. That By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How are the lost going to know that we are Jesus's if we love each other? That's how. Practical. So practical. How do we walk through painful seasons of life? Even painful, like we're in right now, a little bit as, as, a, as a globe with this virus. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's how we have peace in painful seasons of life. We know that it's coming, but Jesus has overcome the world, and we're in him. What about how do we understand how to pray? Well, Jesus tells us, John 16, 24, Up until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be made full. He's commanding us to pray. How do we understand God's sovereignty? How is that supposed to affect our daily lives? John 6, 43 through 44. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Don't grumble about this. Just know it, and then also know that it cannot be undone. That's how you have peace in this. How do I know my salvation is secure? So many people struggle with the security of salvation. You're not alone if that's you. But Jesus says in John 10, 27 through 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. No one. How do we go about finding answers to life's biggest questions? How do we go about finding answers when, when we're, we're confused? We don't know what's, what's up and what's down. Jesus has this interaction with Pilate right before he's about to die. He's still teaching in John 18, 37 through 38, then Pilate said to him, so you were a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Even back then, you had the Oprah theology of live your truth. You have a truth, and you have a truth, and you have a truth. Pilate's like, what is truth? Jesus, if he had only Pilate had heard the chapter before when Jesus says in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify my disciples in the truth. Your word is truth. That's how we know where to go to look for the answers. John's told us. 
So what I want to do, here we are, we're concluding. This, this study of the Gospel of John, let it be for you a reintroduction to Jesus. One, there's, I can vividly remember this scene, sitting in a canoe on Houston County Lake with this, this college student named Trace in the front of this canoe. And we're paddling across and we're talking about faith and life and, and, and Jesus and who he is. And he said that he was reading uh, this book by this rabbi and it was talking about, uh, it was a commentary on Christianity from the perspective of a Jewish rabbi. And he was saying something along the lines of, you know, Christians claim that this Jesus is their rabbi, that he's their teacher, their, their, their disciple, the one that they want to be like. Yet it seems to me that most of them know very little about him or what he said. That's unheard of in Judaism. If you don't know your rabbi, you're not his follower. And that struck me, thinking, thinking about that. Man, how little do we know about the one that we say, this is, all, this is all we're about, is Jesus. If he's all we're about, we should know everything there is to know about him. So what we want to do in the study of John is we want to take Jesus at his word. Who does he say that he is? Let's resist the temptation to superimpose our own created understanding of who Jesus is. Let's fight that urge that we have. Let's honestly evaluate where your understanding of Jesus comes from. Why do you think Jesus is that way? Let's have chapter and verse to point to. This is why I think Jesus is that way. This is why I know that Jesus is this. That we can point to that. Let's let John do that for us. Allow yourself to see Jesus with fresh eyes. Pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten you. That's his job description in, Hebrew, in Ephesians chapter 1, to enlighten the eyes of those who he indwells. Pray for that. And pray that you would see familiar stories with an air of newness. That when you come to Nicodemus, when you come to Lazarus' story, that you're not like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I got that. Pray for new eyes, fresh perspective. Not, not a novel perspective but the biblical perspective. Work hard to fight through the preconceived notions that we have about Jesus. The popular idea about Jesus, the idea that, that, that has just permeated the culture in the United States, at least, about who Jesus is, uh, is something that everyone in the world can get on board with. That, that Jesus is just a kind, gentle, soft, laid-back, unopinionated, Man sent from God to be an example to us, to show us how to be a little bit more okay. Everybody's basically okay, but if you want to be more okay, you should read about Jesus. That, that kind of Jesus that's popularly imagined and fabricated today, that, that kind of Jesus would never be as hated as the biblical Jesus was. The, if we think that Jesus was so passive and so inoffensive then why would anyone care about killing him? These are real people, right? Why would anybody care about shoving that case through the justice system illegitimately if he was so indifferent, if he was just so laid back and meek and mild and just kind of ho-hum and I got a good way to live if you want it? You don't publicly execute Mr. Rogers, you don't publicly execute Gandhi. 
you publicly execute somebody coming in and saying that they not only are God, but they speak as God, and that all who do not follow that are in the judgment of God. You kill that guy, but you don't kill Mr. Rogers. So let's look at Jesus. Let's let him be who he is in this gospel account. And if you do, you will find a Savior who is strong enough to redeem you for eternity despite yourself. That you'll find a Savior who is merciful enough to forgive you and who is gracious enough to love you and who is alone worthy of our exclusive worship. That's who we will find because that's who Jesus is. I want to challenge us to be like the Greeks in John 12 who show up at the feast and they want to see Jesus. They say, this will get this first, and then we're going to close out. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, some non-Jews. So these came to Philip, Philip, one of the disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's all they wanted. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You seem great, Philip, but we want Jesus. Let's, let's do that. Let's have that mindset. Let's have that perspective of me. You should demand that of me. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You're okay. Your wife's way better, but we want to see Jesus, and that's it. So let's do that as we study John. Let's pray.